You know, normally, as a church, you don't want to ever be called the frozen chosen. But today, of all days, I think we can make an exception to that and embrace the title as a moniker of honor for ourselves, because it is downright cold outside. And uh, I know we are all grateful to be able to be here together for the heat that is in this building, but most importantly to know that indeed, we are those who have been chosen by God for new life, and therefore can gather together and be together and enjoy the warmth of our fellowship regardless of the temperature outside today. So uh, it is good to see you all, and I'm very grateful to be able to uh, open up the Word of God together with you. I'm most grateful to be back together with you. Um, so thankful for Pastor Jeremiah filling in for me at the last minute last week as I went down sick on Saturday, uh, but grateful to be back up and with you here again this morning. I would encourage you to go ahead and take your Bibles and open in them with me to John chapter 17 as we open up to a brand new chapter here before us. And as you turn there, I would just very briefly let you know that Chris and Haley Moore are currently going through the adoption process. They were matched up with a birth mother and uh, two little children. Twins have been born into this world. And uh, Chris and Haley were connected to them as adoptive parents. And I would just encourage all of you to be praying for the Moore family, even as it grows, that this process of adoption would go through smoothly. There would be no hiccups or concerns there. And that the legal documents that need to be finalized would be but also those two little children, Vivian and Jude, were both born prematurely and will be spending, I believe, from what I've been told, the next three months or so in the NICU. So we can be praying for those little lives and be looking forward to the day where they're able to join us here as not just part of the Moore family, but part of our church family as well. So do keep the Moors in your prayers, if you would. Just wanted to give you that brief update uh, on our body life here this morning. Now, John chapter 17. You know, every portion of Scripture has been inspired by God. And as such, it is all profitable for our teaching, for our reproof, for our admonition and instruction in righteousness. And every portion of Scripture, they all hold equivalent value having come to us from God. But occasionally in the Scriptures, we come to texts that rise above the landscape in rather rugged mountainous terrain. And in all of the towering mountain ranges that we find in Scripture, I do believe that John chapter 17 stands out above the rest. In many ways, it can be referred to rightly as the Christian's Mount Everest. And it is at the foot of that grand mountain that we find ourselves this morning. Indeed, even as we come to this next chapter, John 17, I think you're going to find, as I have found, that the air does indeed get just a little bit thin in the towering heights of this text. And to show you just how deep the truth goes in this text, I will tell you that Martin Lloyd-Jones, that famous mid-20th century preacher, he wrote no fewer than 246 pages of material on just the three verses that we're going to be looking at here today. There's another very well-known Puritan preacher who actually preached 250 sermons on this one chapter alone. 
There's a lot here. And to say that there's a lot here would be quite a stupendous understatement. But I think it would be helpful to go ahead and acknowledge to you that I am not planning to preach 250 sermons on this chapter. But this morning here, we are going to begin our climb together into the heights of the truth that God has for us to know here in these short 26 verses. And here is what makes these verses, this chapter, so very powerful and profound. See, it's not just that this prayer is the longest recorded prayer in Scripture from Jesus. No, that's not what makes this so powerful. What makes it so profound is the reality of the relationship that we see being put on display here between the Father and His Son. And not just that, but what makes it so powerful for us is the place that we find we have now in that relationship between the Father and the Son. It's a text that is meant to show us the glory of God and how that glory should rightly impact our lives. And so in a sense, this text, John 17, it functions for us much like the transfiguration did for Peter, James, and John. It is our own portal, if you will, into the halls of heaven. And what we see when we open its pages and learn from its truth is nothing less than a glimpse of God's own glory. And that, my friends, is not some dramatic or hyperbolous overstatement here this morning. This is a text that is very deep, and it is meant to leave us changed if we would but see it clearly. So, metaphorically speaking, I invite you to pick up your pack, strap on your ice cleats for more reasons than one, and come with me up into the heights of this towering text. And as we, as we get to the top, our goal is going to be to gaze upon the glory of God himself as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And we, friends, we dare not walk away the same. Well, Jesus, he, he's going to leave and, and waste no time in getting right to the main point right away as he states outright the mission for why he has come to earth. So let's go ahead and just go and dig into this text if you're ready to come with me. John 17, verse 1, Jesus just gives us his mission right up front. Now, when Jesus had spoken these words, that's in reference to chapters 13 through 16 and all the material that we've spent the last four months covering, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, which was a well-known posture of prayer in those days. And he said, Father, the hour has come, so glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, let's explore this verse together here for a few moments this morning because the truth that we find in the second half of verse 1 here in the mouth of Jesus is really, you could call it base camp for our journey up the mountain. This is very important stuff now because it's the main theme of this chapter. But see, it's not just the main theme of this chapter. It's actually also the main theme of the Incarnation. It's the main theme of Jesus' entire life. But it's not just the main theme of Jesus' entire life. This statement right here is the main theme for which all of creation was made. 
See, this is the foundational reason that the world was made in the first place. That Jesus entered into this world and that he says what he says here in chapter 17. That the glory of God might now be seen and known. You know, some of you may be familiar with what is known as the Westminster Catechism. The very first line of which is meant to teach children that the chief end of man is to what? You know it, see? Glorify God and enjoy Him him forever. I, I remember grappling with that truth when I first heard it in elementary school. And I remember thinking to myself, now wait just a minute. You mean to tell me that I am not the chief end? Right on, little Richie. See, that was a major mind bender for me. Because all of us have been pre-programmed and bent by sin to think that we are the chief end of all creation. That we are the one and only thing that matters here upon this earth. But that is not true. What matters is the glory of God being seen and known and put on display. And that is the mission that Jesus places right out in front of us as being the purpose for which he had come to earth. Now, as an elementary schooler, I know that I grasped at that point the importance of glorifying God, but I don't know that I truly understood what that really meant. So let's answer that question here together this morning. What does it mean for God to be glorified? You see, we can't proceed any further. We can't pass go, we can't collect our $200 until we first understand this concept. After all, if that's the reason for which I was made, it's my chief end. And if that's the driving passion of Jesus here in this verse, that the glory of God might be made known, then we should probably just take a beat to make sure that we actually understand what it means to glorify God. Now, in order to understand what it means to glorify or to know how one can go about glorifying, you first must know what glory and what the glory of God actually is. So let me give you a definition here right up front. It's definition time. You ready? Here's the definition of God's glory. The glory of God is the visible manifestation of his nature. It's what you get when you behold all of his attributes and his character put together. It's why the scriptures refer to God's glory as being seen as in the reflection of light or radiance. God's glory is the observable expression or the visible glow that comes from his nature. See, I think the clearest picture of that brilliant glory is found over in Exodus 34 with the person of Moses. Do you remember that time where Moses says to God, show me your glory. And God says, I can't or you'll die. And Moses says, please show me just a little bit. And so God shows Moses just a glimpse of his glory and the brilliance of what Moses sees causes him to walk off of that mountain with his own face shining with a reflected kind of glory. But I ask you, that's how bright this glory is. What was it specifically that Moses saw when he beheld the glory of God? It was but the visible manifestation of this statement. The Lord, the Lord, 
Yahweh is slow to anger. He is abounding in loving kindness. He is gracious and merciful. And it's at that revelation of glory, that revelation of nature, that visible ability to see the character of who God is, that Moses now falls down as being a dead man. See, glory, as defined by that illustration, is the manifestation of God's perfect character. Well, now that we understand this, now we can turn our attention back to the statement of Jesus here in John 17, verse 1, where he says, Father, glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Now that we know what glory is, what does it mean to glorify? Well, Glorifying God doesn't mean that we're adding anything to God. It's not as though Jesus is compounding God's glory here, as though prior to him doing this, there was a glory deficit in God. No, God is glorious. He already has all glory because he is who he is. He can't change who he is. And so glory cannot be added to him, neither can it be removed from him. So the definition of what it is to glorify someone does not mean to add something to the glory that's there. No, to glorify simply means to reveal or to acknowledge glory that already exists. And so to glorify God, therefore, as Jesus makes his request here, what he's asking is that the true glory of God, the nature of who he is in the fullness of the beauty of his character would be made known that it would be manifested, that it would be revealed. And that's the reason why he says, make known the character of your Son, that the Son might reveal the greatness of who you are. That's another way to state what Jesus is saying here. This is a prayer that the full revelation of God's nature would be made manifest. And how, I ask you, would that nature be manifested to the rest of the universe? Well, Jesus says it right there. It is as you glorify your Son. See, it's as God revealed the fullness of the nature of Christ that Christ in return would now go and reveal the nature of the Father's fullness. And that is a very important principle that I need everybody in this room to make sure they understand. The only way by which you can behold the glory of God is as you embrace the glory of Jesus Christ. It's the glory of Christ that is the pathway to beholding the glory of the Father. And apart from Christ, you cannot behold or comprehend the glory of God. He is the only way by which the glory of God can be known. And that is the reason why Jesus says here, glorify me so that I may in turn make your nature known. See, that's what he's actually asking here. Now, I know that that's some really deep stuff and we just jumped off the deep end without any kind of flotation device. And a picture is worth a thousand words. So let me go ahead and give you a picture here this morning to show you just how important this request is that the glory of God would be made known through the person of Jesus Christ, the Son. 
And, and this illustration is going to come from a rather unexpected source. I want us to hear this morning from the words and the mouth of Job. See, my Bible reading program had me reading the book of Job this past week, and I was struck by a particular passage there in that book. See, there in that patriarchal era, as men are peering through the mists of time and seeking to discern shadowy theological realities, Job states the sum total of what he knows to be true about the glory of God. And here are some of the things that he has to say about what he knows to be true of God's glory. He says things like, God hangs the earth on nothing. That's how powerful he is. He binds up the waters in thick clouds. He, he's the one who covers over the face of the full moon. He's the one who sets the boundaries between the light and the darkness. He's the one who stills the seas and blows on the wind, and when he does the pillars of heaven, they tremble. See, all these statements are statements that highlight something about the nature of God's power, the nature of his glory. But then Job, that most ancient of theologians, he goes on to make what I could only consider to be a most remarkable statement. He reveals the limitations of trying to behold the glory of God without the lens of Jesus Christ. Here is what he says, Behold all of these things that I have just mentioned. These are but the outskirts of God's ways. And in all these great and mighty things that I've just talked about, how truly, how very small a whisper do we actually hear of God in them? What he's saying is very simple. Apart from the revelation that comes to us through the person of Jesus Christ, everything that can be known of God in creation is nothing more than the faintest of glimmers of the reality of His true glory. But if you want to see the fullness of the glory of God, if you want to see the very beating heart of God, if you would see beyond the fringes and the outskirts of His power to the very capital of His glorious self, then you, and this is the truth that Jesus is proclaiming in John 17, 1, then you must look at Christ. For it's in Christ alone that the fullness of the glory of God now comes into plain focus for us. And that's the burning drivetrain of this text. That the glory of God would be made known to us as the glory of Jesus Christ was finally put on display for all men to see. And as Jesus says here in this verse, the hour for that display of God's glory, it has come. See, that was the mission that Jesus was on. He was on a mission to make the glory of God known as the glory of His own nature was made manifest before our eyes. That's His mission. But even though that's His mission, the means by which this would be accomplished may be just a little bit surprising to you. It certainly was surprising to the disciples See, there's going to be a twist here in the text that nobody saw coming. 
But before we get into that twist, before we talk about the means by which this glory would be shown, having established the mission, I want to just push pause on our progress here. I know you're saying, are you kidding me? You only made it through one verse. But, but I do want us to stop and just take stock and make a, a very quick, brief point of application here now. Because just as Jesus desired to make known the glory of God, you and I, we too, my friends, have been called to live as unto the glory of that same God. We have been called to glorify His name as well. The mission of the Son to bring glory to the Father is the same mission that has now been entrusted to those of us who are in Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says it this way, Whether therefore you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to what? The glory of God. So based upon the definition that we've already carved out here, what does that mean for us this morning? Well, to glorify God, it means to reflect or to make known the reality of who He already is. And now that you are found in Christ, if you've believed in Him, your mission is the same as His mission. It's to make the glory of God known through your life. And as we've learned here, glorifying God, that doesn't mean that you're adding glory to Him as though you can give Him something that He didn't already have to begin with. No, for you to glorify God, it means that now the purpose, the driving mission of your life is that you would make His character, His nature, His glory known. That you would live in such a way as to reveal the power of who He is manifested in your life. That you, through the fruit of your life, would proclaim the reality of Him. His nature, His glory. It means that, that you and I, we must live in such a way that when people look at us, what do they see? They see the character of Christ in us, who is Himself the radiance of God's glory shining forth from within you. See, just as Jesus lived to manifest the glory of God in Himself, now so too do we live with that same purpose. We now must live to manifest the glory of God in ourselves. Why? Because we're so great? No. Because we have Jesus Christ, the radiant image of the glory of God now residing within us. And so we must live consistently with Him who now lives within. This means that we live in a way that ascribes to Him the praise that He alone is due. We live in a way that seeks to manifest His character, His nature, in our lives. I think that's a very important point of application to be made when we talk about the glory of God being the mission. It was the mission of Christ, and therefore it ought to be your mission, my mission, as well. But let's go ahead and pivot back to the text now and let's get into the means by which God's glory would be revealed to us. And this, this is the twist in the text that is just truly very shocking. How did Jesus intend to glorify both himself and the Father? 
Well, the first word in the text there is a very unique one, and it gives us a hint right away. It's rather hard to translate. You could almost translate the idea of verses 2 and 3 here this way. The Father is going to glorify the Son, and the Son is going to glorify the Father. And here is just how they're going to do that. By bringing eternal life to you. See, these verses teach us that the way by which the glory of God would be most clearly displayed, it's as you and I are caught up into the experience of His eternal life. The glory of God, it becomes knowable when that life which once was shared exclusively between Father, Son, and Spirit now gets offered to you. And see, it's that offer of eternal life to you from creator to creature and from Savior to sinner. In that offer, the true nature of who God is really gets showcased. And as we all get caught up into their relationship, now the reality of who He is gets proven beyond any kind of shadow of doubt. See, now no longer is eternal life just the sole domain of the Trinity. No, now, now as you receive His eternal life, the glory of God in giving it to you, the nature of who He is, it's put on display for all creation to see, and more importantly, for you to know. Look at what He says here in verses 2 and 3. Since, here's how I will glorify you and you will glorify me. Since you have given him, that's Christ, authority over all flesh, so that he may give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. And this is eternal life, that they, that's us, would know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Here's what's happening now. The Father is going to glorify the Son. The Son is going to glorify the Father. And the means by which that mutual glorification takes place is as each of them do their part to bring you into relationship with themself. See, I mean, let's just, let's get real here for a moment. If God were but a figment of our imagination, if he were nothing more than the swirling invention of an adult human brain as the atheists accuse us, then you tell me who in the world would have invented a God like this? A God who is determined prior to creating anything else to demonstrate the incomparable grandeur of His love and His kindness and His mercy and His grace and His justice and His sovereignty, His glory, by designing a plan whereby your redemption is the means by which all of that greatness is revealed. Friends, there is no God like unto our God. This is a God who is beyond our imagination and beyond our description. And now that I've said it's beyond our description, we have to try to describe it because that's exactly what Jesus does here in this text. See, the truth of these two verses, it is just incredibly profound. There are, there are three statements that are made here. One statement, now make sure you get this structure in your head because otherwise you're going to be very confused over these next couple of minutes, okay? So we're all paying attention? Good. One statement that Jesus makes here is in reference to how the Father is going to glorify Him as the Son. 
a second statement is in reference to how he, as the Son, is going to glorify the Father. And the third statement is in reference to how all of that mutual glorification now impacts us. So let's just take these slowly, one at a time, and allow our brains to be blown. All right, that's our plan. Here we go. First, how did the Father intend to glorify the Son? Well, that's the statement that you see right there in the first part of verse 2. You have given him authority over all flesh. See, the means by which the Father glorifies the Son is a gift, a gift specifically of authority, whereby now Christ reigns supreme over all men. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 talks about that when it says, we've already read it this morning, God has highly exalted Christ and given him a name above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What's he saying there? Here's what he's saying. Jesus Christ is not just the standard by which we are judged. He is but he is also the judge himself. And he has been installed into that place of authority by none other than God the Father, whose intention is that all men from every tribe, every tongue, every nation would in the final conclusion of human history lay eyes on the glory of God and be forced to reckon with it. See, Jesus Christ will be glorified in the eyes of every single person who has ever lived. And in that day, when they all stand before him, there will be one of only two possible responses. As you look at the one who holds authority over all flesh, you will either say and rejoice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive honor and glory, wisdom and power, riches and might and blessing. Or you will say as you wail, woe be unto me, for he alone is worthy. Now I see his glory, and yet I failed to glorify him. See, in this way, as the Son is granted authority over all flesh, the Father's intention is that the greatness of who He is would be made known to all mankind. And so Christ becomes the axis around which all of humanity now revolves. It's in relationship to Him that either you find eternal life or eternal death. He's the pivot point around which eternal destinies turn as every man, woman, boy, and child finds their eternal destiny in relationship only to this Son. That is how God has already glorified Christ by giving Him that right of authority. See it there in the text? You have given Him authority over all flesh. Jesus isn't just going to be the judge someday. He is already the judge today. And every single person will give an account to him and will behold the glory of his name. That's how the Father 
glorifies the Son. But that's not the whole equation here. See, because the other half of the equation is that the Son is every bit as intent upon glorifying the Father as the Father is upon glorifying His Son. So we've seen how the Father glorifies the Son. Now let's see how the Son intends to glorify the Father. How does the Son show us the glory of the Father's nature? We've seen how the Father shows us the glory of the Son's. Now let's put it in reverse and see how it goes the other way. Because Jesus' intention here isn't just to receive all the glory from the Father and then bask in it for Himself. No, His intention, as He's already stated in verse 1, is to turn and make the Father's glory known too. So how does He do this? He does it by using the authority that the Father gave to Him to now give life to all those marked out beforehand for life by the Father. You can see it right there. He uses that authority now, the Son does, to give eternal life to every single person that the Father has given into His own hands. See, the way by which the Son brings glory to the Father is as he goes to work redeeming those who were chosen by God for the purpose of redemption. Every single person that the Father has individually given to the Son as a gift of love, the Son is faithful to redeem. You, 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 and you, you see. And the Son, because He loves His Father, He wants the greatness of the Father's nature to be known as well. And so at every step of His redemptive interaction with us, what is He showing to us? He is showing us now the fullness of the glory of God in being willing to redeem us. See, at the moment of justification, the Son unveils the glory of God's perfect holy righteousness. Through the process of sanctification, the Son, He is preparing us to meet that Father's glory someday. And ultimately, at the point of glorification, Christ is going to grant us the right to stand by His side before the Father, beholding for the rest of eternity truly the fullness of the glory of the Lord. And on that day, as we all stand before God, gazing at the glory of both Father and Son who were intent upon glorifying each other, do you know what the Son does with us who have been given to Him by the Father? Well, He takes us, those who were given from the Father to the Son, and having redeemed us, He turns around and gives us back to the Father. He takes the love gift of the Father, you and me, and He presents us back to the Father now as a love gift of His own, saying, Look, Father, at what I have done with those whom You have given to me. And so, as 1 Corinthians 15.24 informs us, then, in that day, comes the end. When Jesus delivers the kingdom of His people to God the Father, having subjected everything to Himself, so now He subjects everything back to the Father so that God might be all in all, His glory having been made known. See, this, friends, this is the way by which the glory of God is manifested to us. And where are we in the middle of all of these transactions as the Father gives us to the Son and the Son intent on the Father's glory gives us back to the Father? Where are we? There we stand in the middle looking 
back and forth through the whole process of redemption, gazing upon and beholding the glory, the nature, the character, the beauty of who our God is who would be willing to share such life with us, His creatures. See, that's how we behold the glory of God. This is the way that the Father and Son are both glorified. It's as the Father gives us to the Son for the purpose of redemption. And the Son, having redeemed us, turns around and gives us back to the Father. And at every point in that transaction, we behold the glory of God, both Father and Son, through their salvation of you. See, we are the ones who have now the capacity to know the nature of who our God is, glory which in Christ has now been unveiled for all creation to see, and more importantly, for you now to know. Which leads us down to the third statement that Jesus makes here. And that relates to your place in this equation. Father glorifies Son. Son glorifies Father. And where are you in the midst of it? You are but the recipient of the knowledge of this glory, which is itself the definition of eternal life. Look at verse 3. This is eternal life. That they, who's that? those who have been chosen by God for salvation, might now know you, the fullness of your glory having been comprehended by them. How can that glory be seen? Well, it's as you know the only true God. How do you know the only true God? It's as you come to Him through Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, He is the pathway by which you're able to behold the glory of God and know Him. And it's having that relationship with Him which is the benefit and blessing of eternal life. So what does this mean for us? It means that God wants you to know Him in the fullness of who He is. Because it's as you, a creature, come to know Him, the Creator, that He is truly glorified. It's as you come to behold the glory of God that the Father is pleased to say, My Son did that. It's as you come to know the glory of God that the Son is able to say with full satisfaction, Now they see you, the only true God. And He knows good and well that the only way by which we can see that God and His glory is through having a relationship with Himself. See, that's very important for us to understand this morning. If eternal life is defined as having the ability to perceive God's glory and know Him intimately, and if the only way to have that kind of knowledge of God's glory is through the person of Jesus Christ, then what conclusion does that leave us to draw? What is the most important thing in our life in terms of having a relationship with God and with His glory? 
It's that we must pursue the knowledge of Christ, the one who makes the glory of God visible for us. You say, okay, well, how and where do I look in order to see the glory of Christ? If the whole point is for me to see God's glory in Him, well, then where do I go to look to see the glory of God on display most clearly in Christ? Perhaps asked more practically, if I want to behold the glory of the Lord, which is life, where do I look to see His glory? Well, the answer to that question of application has actually already been given to us. You might think that we would turn ahead to John 19 and 20, but no, I want you to find the answer to this question to go back with me to John chapter 12. And if you recall, John 12, even though it's five chapters back, John 12 had actually only occurred in the chronology of the text one day prior. And on the day before, for the very first time, Jesus had said something very important. There in verse 23, he says, Now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, throughout this entire book, Jesus has been saying, This is not my time, this is not my hour, this is not yet the place and the occasion. But here, just within the last 24 hours, as we come down to the conclusion of John's gospel, he has begun saying, Now it is my time to glorify the Father. But how would that glory be made known? Well, Jesus knows, and it's a terrifying thought to him. You can see that there in verse 27 where he says, Now is my soul troubled. But what am I going to say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it's for this purpose that I have come to this hour. So here is what I say. Father, glorify your name. See, Jesus knew the difficulty, the pain, and the horror of what it would take for the Father's glory to be manifested in Himself. And yet He is still resolute and resolved to face that hour come what may. And it's as Jesus is saying and thinking through what the cost is going to be that the voice of the Father booms forth from heaven as God speaks to everyone present there in verse 28. You can see it right there in chapter 12 where God says, not only have I glorified my name, he did that in the person and work of Christ, I will glorify it again. Well, what is the Father referring to when he makes such a wild promise? Well, Jesus knows they don't understand. And so he explains it to us very clearly. Skip down with me to verse 32. How? How was the Father going to put His glory on display through the person of Jesus Christ? Well, you can see it there very clearly in chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus says, here's exactly how the glory of God will be made manifest to you. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Friend, that right there, that is the answer of how you can see the glory and beauty and nature of God on full display. 
It's as you look at the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross because it's at the cross and the supreme sacrifice of that moment where the glory of God becomes most visible to us. It's at the glory of the cross where the fullness of God's nature comes into focus and now we can see the incomparable beauty of who our God is and the lengths to which He would go to bring us into relationship with himself so that his glory might be made known not only to us but seen through us to the rest of humanity to the rest of the universe the cross you see it is the agent by which the nature of God was finally proven and now no more do we content ourselves to nibble around at the outskirts of his glory no now at the cross we see a towering skyscraper of glory that stretches into heaven and bridges the gap between God and man. See, that is the way by which the glory of God was made known to us and put on display. It's as we look at the work He has done for us in the cross. For it's at the cross where now we see the glory of God. And so, my friends, if you're here this morning and you're not living in a way that is consumed with God's glory, then you need to return to the foot of that cross. You need to gaze upon the display of God's heart that was showcased there for you. For it's at the cross where the Son made the Father's glory known once and for all. And it was through that cross that the Father turned and made the glory of the Son readily apparent to you and to me. And now it's because of that cross that we, you and I, if we would but believe in Christ, now have access to the very life of God. And so this morning, we have the opportunity to remember that cross as we engage together in the Lord's table. Indeed, remembering the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, that that is the point of this time, that we would stop ourselves up short, that we would cease from the pursuit of our own glory and come back to gaze upon His alone and be reminded just what He has done for us. This morning, I invite you to stand together with me and let's sing to Jesus. Jesus.